Elder Dallin H. Oaks, a member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles, has just addressed us, followed by the Tabernacle Choir singing, Truth Eternal. President Benson has asked that I serve as concluding speaker at this session of our conference. Recently, my brothers and sisters, there moved over the wires of Associated Press a catalog of crime as the daily happenings around the world were relayed to the media and then to homes on every continent. The headlines were brief. They featured murder, robbery, rape, molestation, fraud, deceit, corruption. I noted several of them. One, man slays wife and children, then turns gun on self. A second one, child identifies molester. A third, hundreds lose all as multimillion dollar scam is exposed. The sordid list continued. Shades of Sodom, glimpses of Gomorrah. Our beloved President, President Ezra Taft Benson, has frequently stated that we live in a wicked world. And the Apostle Paul, he foretold our time when he said that men would be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. Must we repeat the experience of those wicked persons who inhabited the cities of the plain? Can we not learn from the lessons of Noah? Is there no balm in Gilead? There comes to the listener the gentle invitation of the Lord when he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto him. That doorway will lead us from the morass of worldliness onward and upward to the high ground of righteousness. Does that doorway have a name? It surely does, and I have chosen to refer to it as a doorway called love. Love is the catalyst that causes change. Love is the balm that heals the soul. But love doesn't fall like rain nor grow like weeds. Love has its price. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that Son, our Savior, he gave his mortal life that we might have eternal life. So great was his love for his Father and for us. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was confronted by an inquiring lawyer who said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him, saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. As Jesus took his touching and tender farewell of his disciples, he said to them, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And a new commandment give I unto you, that ye should love one another, even as I have loved you. The principle of love is readily understood by children. Frequently, some of the deeper doctrines pass them by, but every child relates to the little verse you and I learned in primary, entitled, Which Loved Best? Perhaps we can all remember it. I love you, mother, said little John. Then forgetting his work, his cap went on, and he was off to the garden swing, leaving mother the wood and the water to bring. I love you, mother, said Rosie Nell. I love you more than words can tell. So she teased and she pouted half the day till mother rejoiced when she went to play. I love you, mother, said little Fan. Today I'll help you all I can. How glad I am that school doesn't keep. So she rocked the baby till it fell asleep. Then stepping softly, she fetched the broom, swept the floor and tidied the room. Busy and happy all day was she, busy and happy as a child could be. I love you, mother, again they said, three little children going to bed. Now how do you think that mother guessed which of them really loved her best? Home should be a haven for love. Honor, consideration, courtesy symbolize love and characterize the righteous family. Fathers in such homes will not receive the stinging rebuke which fathers received by the Lord, as recorded in the book of Jacob, when he said, Ye have broken the hearts of your tender wives and have lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them. And the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you. And in Third Nephi, the Lord counseled, There shall be no disputations. For verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention and who stirreth up the hearts of men to contend in anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stirreth up the hearts of men to contend in anger one with another, but this is my doctrine, that such things be done away. Where love is, my brothers and sisters, there is no disputation. Where love is, there is no contention. Where love is, there God will be also. Each of us has the responsibility to keep the commandments of God. From the lessons learned in the Holy Scripture, we can find application of those lessons in our lives. It was the Prophet Joseph who declared, Happiness is the object and the design of our existence. 
and will be the end thereof if we will but pursue the path which leads to it. And that path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all of the commandments of God. In the classic musical Camelot, we find an interesting line containing words of warning for you and for me. You'll remember the triangle with King Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere. Arthur solemnly said, We must not let our passions destroy our dreams. And in his dream of a better world, he said that violence is not strength and compassion is not weakness. In our world, unfortunately needed change, required help, desired relief, oft times are met with the old and outmoded comment, they ought to do something about this. We fail to define the word they. I think that's why I like the line from a song, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Tears came to my eyes some time ago when I read of a boy and his experience in one of our eastern cities. He saw a man, a vagrant, lying asleep on the sidewalk, and so touched was he that he returned to his home and obtained his own pillow from his bed, brought it back to the sleeping man, and placed it beneath his head. Surely that lad had an appreciation of the word of the Lord, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. I extol those who with willing care and compassionate concern feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and indeed house the homeless. He who notes the sparrow's fall will not leave unrewarded such gracious acts. For a bell is no bell till you ring it, and a song is no song till you sing it, and love wasn't put in your heart there to stay. Love isn't love till you give it away. The Holy Bible records that Jesus came into a city called Nain. And there, as he approached the gate of the city, he beheld a dead man being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And when Jesus looked upon her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Weep not. And then he approached the bier and touched it. And those who bear it stood still. And then, in the majesty of his messianic ministry, he declared those words, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And Jesus delivered him to his mother. The desire to lift, the willingness to help, the graciousness to give are all characteristic of a heart filled with love. 
And the poet said that love is the noblest attribute of the human soul. And then William Shakespeare added, They do not love who do not show their love. The schoolteacher showed her love by the philosophy she had in her classroom. No one fails in my class. It is my duty to help every student succeed. The businessman I met on the streets of Salt Lake City a month ago showed his love. He was retired. He looked happier than I'd ever seen him. I said, Ed, why are you so happy? He said, thus far this year, I have found employment full-time, permanent, for 15 of my fellow quorum members. I've never been happier. Diminutive in size, little Ed, as we called him, stood mighty tall that day. Another large and successful businessman in Salt Lake, a vendor of wholesale poultry, showed his love by one comment. When one attempted to pay for 25 roasting hens, he put the hens in the box and put them in the trunk of the car and then said, These are for your widows, aren't they? And the answer was yes. Then with a quaver in his voice, he said, There will be no charge. And there are more where these came from. Robert Woodruff, a businessman of another generation, traversed our land, speaking to civic clubs and other organizations to a small outline which contained this message. The five most important words in the language are these. I am proud of you. The four most important words are these. What is your opinion? The three most important words are these. If you please. The two most important words are these, thank you. To Mr. Woodruff's list, I would add, the single most important word is love. Some time back, I watched on television a recap of a state football championship game here in Utah. Underdog Morgan was playing perennial favorite Millard High. The game was crucial. Coach Jan Smith, confined to a wheelchair, Brother Hunter, was giving instructions to his players before the game began. He said, this is the most important game of your lives. Lose it and you'll regret it forever. Win it and you'll remember it forever. Make every play as though the entire game depended upon it. His wife, whom he referred to as his chief assistant, was standing outside of the partially open door, she heard her husband say, I love you guys. I don't care so much about the game, but I love you, and I want the victory for you. Underdog Morgan won the game and the state championship. A heart filled with love, true love, is really a reflection of Christ's love. Once each year, we call it the Christmas spirit. You can see it, you can hear it, you can feel it, but never alone. One year, as Christmas approached, I began to think of an experience in my boyhood when I was 10 and a trekker in primary. 
Our primary president asked if she could meet with me alone after the opening exercises. There we sat on the front row of the chapel in the otherwise empty building. I wondered what she wanted. Melissa looked old even then with her gray hair and her rimless glasses. But then she put her arm around my shoulder and burst into tears. I was startled and said, what's wrong? And she gently wiped a tear and she said, I'm failing as the primary president of the ward. I've been unable to achieve reverence on the part of the trail builders in the opening exercises of primary. And though she had had a vision from heaven, she said, Oh, Tommy, would you help me achieve reverence? Why, of course I would. <laughs> Unknown to her, or to me rather, but fully well known to her, she had just solved the reverence problem in primary. <laughs> she had gone right to the source. Me. The formula, love. Now, this prior to Christmas Day, it was cold outside, and I thought I would pay a visit to my former primary president, Melissa. Now in her late 90s, she lived in a nursing facility in the northwest portion of Salt Lake City. And as I approached the nursing home, over my car radio, I heard Christmas carols. The one I best remember was, Hark, the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. I thought of wise men carrying gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to a humble abode. I, too, was paying a visit to a humble abode. I carried no gift but the gift of love and a desire to say thank you. I found Melissa in the lunchroom, staring at an untouched plate of food. I greeted her and began to chat. Unfortunately. I saw nothing but a blank and a benign stare. Not a glimpse of recognition, far less a spoken word. Nonetheless, I took fork in hand and began to feed her and talked incessantly about the primary. Two other patients came over and said, Why are you talking to her? She doesn't know anybody, not even her own family. Well, I continued feeding and talking. But at length, luncheon ended, my one-sided conversation wound down, and I stood to leave. I held her aged hand in mine and looked into those still beautiful eyes, and I said, God bless you, Melissa, and may you have a Merry Christmas. As our eyes met, without warning, she said, I know you. You're Tommy Monson, my primary boy. Oh, how I love you! And she lifted my hand to her aged lips and bestowed upon it the kiss of love. Her tears bathed our clasped hands, hands that that day were hallowed by heaven and graced by God. The herald angels did sing, my brothers and sisters, and I developed a new appreciation of the word of the Lord. Woman, Behold thy son, and to his disciple, behold thy mother. Outside the sky was blue, azure blue. 
The air was cool, crispy cool, and the snow was white, crystal white. And as I walked to my car, I seemed to hear an echo from far off Bethlehem concerning the words, How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. The wondrous gift had been given. The heavenly blessing had been bestowed. The dear Christ had entered in, all through a doorway called love. To this truth I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Tabernacle Choir will sing in closing each life that touches ours for good. The benediction will be offered by Bishop Henry B. Eyring, first counselor in the presiding bishopric, and this conference will then be adjourned until 2 o'clock this afternoon. The young people of a certain ward had worked to earn the large sum of money needed to go on an adventure trip. I had had some acquaintance with their bishop. He called and asked if I would help him get some news publicity so these young people would be recognized for the fine things they were doing. I said I would not help him. He was surprised and asked why. I answered that although it was commendable that the young people had worked hard to earn this money, some things are interesting, while other things are important, and there may be a higher purpose for the energy they had expended. He was even more surprised and asked what I meant. I explained that my ministry takes me into countries where the people are less privileged than where he lives. I know of their challenges and sacrifice. I told him of the struggles of young people in those areas to obtain the needed funds to support themselves on missions. For the family to have enough food is often a challenge. Clothing is shared and worn out. Fashion is whatever is available, and in many cases that is not much. I explained that the amount of money these fine young people had earned would keep several of these missionaries in the field for their entire missions. We talked about the relative value of an adventure trip as compared to that of missionary service. He said, are you asking me to have these young people donate these funds to the General Missionary Fund of the Church? I said, no, I have not asked you to do that. I have just said that there are finer things to do. I explained that I was not against the kind of project they were planning, but there must be a balance, and by comparison, some things are interesting and enticing while other things are important. Later, the bishop said he had talked to the young people, and they had caught the vision and spirit of our previous conversation. They wanted to sacrifice their adventure trip and donate all the money to the General Missionary Fund. They asked if they could come and bring the check and have their picture taken with me as they made the donation. And could they have the picture and an article put into the news? <laughs> I surprised him again. I said no. Then I said, you might consider helping your young people learn a higher law of recognition. 
Recognition from on high is silent. It is carefully and quietly recorded there. Let them feel the joy and gain the treasure in their heart and soul that comes from silent, selfless service. They did this, and now as a reward each has a memory and a pride which they recognize as one of the finer and more important things they have ever done. In a refugee camp in Bataan, Philippines, I watched as one of our lovely lady missionaries sat down on the dirty floor beside an old woman who was weeping and confused and afraid. She gently pulled this woman's head over onto her shoulder and smoothed her hair with one hand as she put her other arm around her to comfort her. I learned that this woman had been driven from her home. Some of her family members had been killed. She'd been abused and driven through the forests and jungles and finally out of her own country. She could not even speak the language of her present benefactors. Later, as we talked of the work she was doing, the lady missionary said, with tears running down her face, This is the finest thing I have ever done. Many things are only interesting and enticing, while other things are important. Sometimes, because of the pressures of the world around us, our service projects become self-service projects rather than selfless service projects. Selfless service projects are the projects of the gospel. They have continuity. They are not one-time special events based on entertainment and fun and games. They need not be regimented nor regulated. Selfless service projects are people-to-people projects. They are face-to-face, eye-to-eye, voice-to-ear, heart-to-heart, spirit-to-spirit and hand-in-hand, people-to-people projects. We must remember that we are social beings. Our eternal destiny is welded to the destiny of our fellows. Within this social system, there is always a desire for recognition, and this is as it should be if it is kept within its bounds. Elder Marvin J. Ashton once related that during a meeting, a woman seated behind him passed him a note. It simply said, Would you please turn around and look at me? Then he said, Everyone needs to be looked at. Within each of us there is an intense need to feel that we belong. This feeling of unity and togetherness comes through the warmth of a smile, a handshake or a hug, through laughter and unspoken demonstrations of love. It comes in the quiet, reverent moments of soft conversation and in listening. It comes from a still, small voice reminding us that we are brothers and sisters, the children of a heavenly Father. To get recognition and the praise of men can become an obsessive goal in one's life. It can lead from one act to another until life is filled with egotism and selfishness. The momentary pleasure that recognition and the praise of men brings almost always causes a person to want more. If they can't get it in one way, they will try another. If it can't be obtained by being's one natural self, they will try to get it acting out a life that is unnatural. The longing to be popular, to be praised by one's peers, and to receive the recognition of men is a very powerful force. It is vain to seek the praise or recognition of men. This vanity comes of evil because it springs forth out of selfishness, 
Christ clearly taught this as he spoke of those who set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. Behold, the Lord hath forbidden this thing, wherefore the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity, which charity is love. And except they should have charity, they were nothing. Wherefore, if they should have charity, they would not suffer the labor in Zion to perish, but the labor in Zion shall labor for Zion. Selflessness is righteousness. It embraces the true spirit of companionship. It is the very essence of friendship. It is the portrayer of true love and oneness in humanity. Its reward is the freeing of the soul, a nearness to divinity, a worthiness for the companionship of the Spirit. Every requirement that God's plan for our salvation places upon us is based on the giving of oneself. The only way under the heavens whereby a person can be sanctified is in selfless service. Where the proper focus on gospel-centered, selfless service is not developed, selfishness takes over. Of all influences that cause men to choose wrong, selfishness is undoubtedly the strongest. Where it is, the spirit is not. Talents go unshared, the needs of the poor unrequited, the weak unstrengthened, the ignorant untaught, and the lost unrecovered. Selfishness viewed in its true sense is the absence of empathy and compassion, the abandonment of brotherhood, the rejection of God's plan, and the isolation of one's soul. As I have said, many things, in fact most, are interesting and many enticing, but some things are important. The limits of time dictate that we must prioritize what we do. The divinely given and heaven-protected gift of agency allows us to determine to what degree we will serve others and allow them to serve us. The depth of involvement in that which is important rather than just interesting is our own choice. As we make these choices, we might consider that the glitter and excitement of festive, fun-filled projects are interesting. But the shut-ins, the lonely, the handicapped, the homeless, the latchkey kids, and the abandoned aged are important. Worldly magazines, tabloids, and much of the multi-mass media mess of fast-track information we are receiving is interesting and enticing. But the scriptures are important. The RVs and the TVs and retirement ease make it interesting to wander and play, but people's needs for selfless deeds are important. There is concern that wander and play have replaced ponder and pray. A focus on fashion and the getting and spending and the accumulation of things for our enjoyment and comfort is interesting and enticing. But a focus on developing one's developing and devoting one's means and time and one's very self 
to the cause of proclaiming the gospel is important. The meetings and materials and planning are all interesting, but the doing is important. With the constant exhortation to come unto Christ is the promise that we can be perfected in Him if we do all that we can do by loving and serving God with all of our might, mind, and strength, then is His grace sufficient for us. By His grace, after all that we can do, we may become perfect in Christ. Shall we not then strive for the recognition of that Almighty God who is our Father through our selfless service? And when he had called the people unto him, his disciples, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will serve, save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Shortly after this call came to me, I was traveling by plane from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Salt Lake City. A young businessman stepped in my seat in the plane and introduced himself. He asked if I was traveling to attend meetings here at church headquarters, and I answered yes. Will you see President Benson? I think that is unlikely in view of the nature of the meetings. When you see him, Will you tell him that though we have never met, I have a deep love for him? He returned to his seat. It was late in the day. Soon the lights were dimmed, giving me ample opportunity to think on that experience. Brothers and sisters, there is great safety in having a love for the brethren. As we traveled through the night, I remembered an experience that had come to me in this very tabernacle some years ago. It was, I believe, the last time that President Joseph Fielding Smith spoke to a general priesthood meeting. He said, quote, Now, brethren, I think there is one thing which we should have exceedingly clear in our minds. Neither the President of the Church, nor the First Presidency, nor the united voice of the First Presidency and the Twelve will ever lead the saints astray or send forth counsel to the world that is contrary to the mind and will of the Lord. When President Smith made that statement, the Spirit bore witness to me that it was true. That same Spirit bears witness anew today. President Spencer W. Kimball told of the experience of a man who, quote, reveled against the call of Brigham Young to go to Southern Valleys, saying, Nobody is going to tell me where to go and what to do. Through his personal rebellion, he took his entire family out of the Church. How little he retarded the colonization program. 
The valleys were settled in spite of him. How little his disaffection injured the Church. It has grown steadily without him. But how he has suffered in his eternal progression. In contrast, there were many who pulled up stakes, moved to new worlds, and reared families of faith and devotion. What can we do to help develop a love for the prophets, seers, and revelators? Permit me to make three suggestions. First, read the scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon. Speaking of the scriptures, the prophet Joseph Smith said, He who reads it oftenest will like it best, and he who is acquainted with it will know the hand wherever he can see it. Let us read the scriptures, and we will know the hand. The same spirit that is felt while reading the word of the Lord in the scriptures accompanies the pronouncements of the Lord's prophets. As we learn to love the word of the Lord as written in the scriptures, we will love the word of the Lord as given through his prophets. Second, let us do as the prophets request. Note the words of the Savior. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. President Benson, in April Conference 1986, said, quote, The Book of Mormon has not been, nor is it yet, the center of our personal study, family teaching, preaching, and missionary work. Of this we must repent. Close quote. Let us do, brothers and sisters, as the prophet asks, and in a little time we will know that he speaks the word of the Lord. Three, pray for them. Call down the blessings of heaven upon the heads of the prophets, seers, and revelators. Know that the Lord responds to the sustaining prayers of the saints. In addition, as our hearts go out to them through sincere prayer, our hearts will be filled with love for them. There is safety in loving the brethren. What kind of safety? The Master concluded the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew and 3 Nephi, with the following statement, Whoso heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Did you note, brothers and sisters, that the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew upon both houses? Just because we follow the word of the Lord does not mean we will suffer no ill winds. It does mean that we will spiritually survive them. The Prophet Mormon counseled us in great power on the subject of prophets when he said, Woe unto him that shall deny the revelations of the Lord, 
and that shall say, The Lord no longer worketh by revelation, or by prophecy, or by gifts, or by tongues, or by healings, or by the power of the Holy Ghost. Priesthood leaders, do you want to raise the spiritual level of your stewardship? Follow the brethren. Husbands, do you want your wives to have more confidence in you and your leadership? Follow the brethren. Parents, do you want your children to feel your love and more willingly accept your direction? Love the brethren. We have in this conference heard what the Lord would have us know. What has been said and what will yet be said should be studied and pondered and prayed over and followed. Leave no question in anyone's mind where you stand. Declare in quiet tones that you love the brethren and you're going to follow them. Add exclamation marks to your words as you quietly and faithfully follow the brethren. You will find that you enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life in the world to come. I am a witness that this is the work of God. There is a prophet in our midst, even President Ezra Taft Benson. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We have just completed a summer in which we have commemorated several events of great historical significance. On the 24th of July, we celebrated the 140th anniversary of the arrival of the Mormon pioneers in the Salt Lake Valley. At the same time, we were commemorating the 150th anniversary of the arrival of the first LDS missionaries in Great Britain. Finally, citizens of the great United States, members of the Church and non-members alike, recently celebrated the 200th birthday of their Constitution. Each of these events has had a marked and lasting impact on the history of the Church. As I participated in many of the festivities dotting this historic summer, I pondered the purpose of celebrations. Celebrating events of the past focuses our thoughts on our history. We take the opportunity to review the past. We glean from the experiences of the past as we anticipate the future. Cicero wrote this of history, Not to know what has been transacted in former times is to always be a child. If no use is, is made of the labors of the past, the world must remain always in the infancy of knowledge. This summer has rekindled in me an interest in our heritage and history. I have been intrigued by the similarities found here and especially fascinated with the parallelism between the Hebrew nation and our own Church history. The man prepared by our Heavenly Father to be the leader of the birth of the Hebrew nation was Moses. His illustrious name adorns the pages of ancient history. 
The Lord revealed through Moses the feasts and events that the Israelites should hold as a perpetual reminder of their deliverance from slavery and the birth of their new nation. These celebrations took two forms. First, they were celebrations of the actual historical events, such as the Passover, to remind the people of Israel of the Lord's hand in delivering them. Then there were traditions tied to periods of time determined by various multiples of the number seven. Of course, the seventh day was the Sabbath, a day of rest. The seventh month, the time of harvest. Then, as we read in the 25th chapter of Leviticus, there were special instructions pertaining to the seventh year and the fiftieth year. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years shalt thou prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of the rest unto the land, a Sabbath unto the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard, and thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trump of jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement, shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto, un unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. Every fiftieth year the land was to be returned to the original owners or their descendants, and all Israelites sold into slavery for debt were to be freed. The land, as the seventh year, as in the seventh year and the sabbatical year, was to lie fallow. Even in our day, the tradition of sabbatical years is perpetuated by universities that encourage faculty members to go on sabbaticals roughly every seven years. The word jubilee, in generally interpreted, means ram or ram's horn, and to refer to the horn used to proclaim the beginning of the jubilee year or the fiftieth year. There seems to be four purposes for celebrations and traditions of ancient Israel, each of which could be applied as a guide and an influence to the way we celebrate and the meanings we give our celebrations. First, they preserve their religious faith and strengthen the spiritual fiber of the people of Israel. As an example, let us review the messages implicit in the celebration of the Jubilee year. An excerpt from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia tells us that the fiftieth year was a time of proclaiming liberty unto all the inhabitants of the land. God had redeemed his people from bondage in Egypt, and none of them was again 
to be reduced to the status of slave. God's children were not to be oppressed. Indeed, as citizens of a theocratic kingdom, masters and servants had become brothers together. Thus, as seen in the widest application, only through its loyalty to God could Israel, as a nation, ever hope to be free and independent of other masters. The second feature of the Jubilee was that the reconstitution of all real property. The purpose was to demonstrate that the earth is subject basically to God's laws and not men's desires. God's specific legislation concerning the inalienability of Israel's land titles. It required a reversion of all hereditary property to the family that originally possessed it and to a reestablishment of their initial arrangement regarding God's division of the lands. It did not teach either a socialistic economic theory that a person is entitled to ownership based on his need or that of a free enterprise system that allowed unlimited expansion of private property. On the contrary, it established a fixed title to the property assigned by God. What powerful messages these are, that the Israelites were God's children and that all they possessed was God's and that only He could permanently grant title to the land. Truly, these messages couched in the tradition of the Jubilee year reminded the people of Israel of their spiritual genealogy and their indebtedness to the Lord. Celebrations of Christmas and Easter, our annual Pioneer Day observance, events commemorating the restoration of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, the Relief Society birthday parties and pageants all cause us to remember our spiritual heritage and increase our gratitude to the Lord for all He does for us. Second, Israel's celebrations and traditions had a political component. These were times of uniting the tribes to form a closer union, celebrations that commemorate important events in our native land should receive support and attention. I was impressed at how vigorously and appropriately members of the Church residing in the United States celebrated the 200th year of the Constitution. After all, we declare in the Twelfth Article of Faith, we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. We find that this Council is continually needed in the Church today. Every member of the Church should be committed to obeying and honoring the laws of the land in which they live. We should be exemplary in our obedience to governments that govern us. The Church, to be of service to nations of the world, must be a wholesome influence in the lives of individuals who embrace it in temporal as well as spiritual affairs. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, we recall the account of the Pharisees attempting to entangle the Savior in the conflict they perceived 
in his teachings between church and state. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is the image and superscription? They said unto him, Caesar's. Then he saith unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. Continuing after the Savior's ministry, the apostles urged the saints to be orderly and law-abiding. Writing to Titus, Paul declared, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. As Church members, we live under the banner of so many different flags. How important it is that we understand our place and our position in the lands in which we live. We should be familiar with the history, heritage, and laws of the land that govern us. In those countries that allow us the right to participate in the affairs of government, we should use our free agency and be actively engaged in supporting and defending the principles of truth, right, and freedom. Now, third, Israel's celebrations and traditions had a cultural impact. Their festivals and, fe- uh, and feasts were times of sharing talents and accomplishments. They were time of sharing practical knowledge associated with advancements in arts and sciences. An important part of our pioneer heritage is an appreciation of all cultural arts. Our pioneer forebears literally danced and sang their way across the plains. It was a way they kept their spirits high in face of tremendous hardships. As the pioneers settled in communities, they built theaters, organized bands and choruses, and sent artists on missions to gain experience and training to develop their talents fully. Certainly we honor our pioneer heritage by making beauty and culture one of the centerpieces of our commemorations. And by so doing, are we not also offering praise to the Lord through the beautiful creations of our hands and our minds? Finally, the celebrations and traditions of ancient Israel had a deep social significance. They were times of building a sense of community, a time of reaffirming a brotherhood and sisterhood shared by everyone, a time of bonding families together. In the General Conference of 1880, President John Taylor announced the Jubilee Year of the Church. He proposed that the body of the, to the body of the Church several ways to celebrate the Jubilee Year. Always ways that drew the community of saints more closely together. President Taylor said, It it occurred to me that we ought to do something, as they did in former times, to relieve those that are oppressed with debt, to assist those that are needy, to break the yoke of those that may feel themselves crowded upon, and to make it a time of general rejoicing. President Taylor then proposed that one half of the debt 
of the members to the Perpetual Immigration Fund be released. Second, the poor to be released of the back tithing they had committed for. Third, the Church was to raise a herd of a hundred, a thousand milk cows to be distributed to the poor and needy. The Church was to contribute 300 cows, and the rest would be gathered from the stakes of the Church. And finally, the Relief Society was to gather bushels of wheat to be loaned to the poor to be used as seed. Then, after the harvest, the loan could be repaid, thus establishing a permanent store of seed wheat. Someone asked President he, uh, Taylor if the wheat was to be loaned without interest. He replied, of course it is. We do not want any nonsense of that kind in a time of jubilee. What a marvelous effect President Taylor's proposal must have had on the Church social structure. By recasting the traditions of ancient Israel in a way to respond to present-day present needs, President Taylor showed the members how to be true Latter-day Saints. Celebrating important historical events perpetuate traditions, but it does not replace the study of history. Rather, it encourages it. We build bridges between the present and the past and bring relevance into the, and interest into our study of history. When we celebrate, we remember. Sometimes we re reenact that which has gone on before. When we honor tradition, we actually do what our ancestors did. I hope as we can continue to commemorate historical events and reclaim our traditions that we always celebrate with a purpose. I pray that we will make our celebrations more meaningful by reaffirming our spiritual, political, cultural, and social values. As members of this glorious Church, we share a rich heritage. We literally stand on the shoulders of giants of faith, vision, and spirit who preceded us. God grant that we may ever keep alive the rich heritage which is ours, especially by building family traditions as constant reminders of our standards and our values. This is the Lord's work in which we are engaged. I bear witness of that. He lives. Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. We are engaged in His work, is my humble prayer, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.